And it's hard because we look at these judges and we think, how am I ever going to measure up to that? The difference, the only difference between those people then and us now is that they were born then and we were born now. Aside from that, they were humans just like us. They went through everyday life just like us. They had their own temptations, their own struggles. They're human. The only difference is they let God use them and not count themselves out. Thank you for joining us on the Orangewood Church Podcast. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date on our latest news and events. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube for more content and to know when we are live. We hope today's message inspires you and leads you closer in your walk with God. So it is the last Sunday of October, Halloween. Very scary day, and that's why I'm speaking today, to honor the scariness of today. You get to hear from me today. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's going to be good. I'm very, very excited because one of the things I love, and so when Josh asked me, he said, do you want to speak on Sunday, and do you ever want to speak on any Sunday? And I said, I do, and I love speaking. I love sharing my heart with people because there's so much that, I internalize, and part of that is just the introverted side of me, and then I have to flip that switch to the extroverted side of me. But I have so much that I internalize, and then I just like, oh, this is so cool. I just want to share this. Oh, that's so great. I want to share this. And so this is one of those times when I get to do that. So normally I'm just back there behind the computer. So it was weird this morning when I came in, and I'm thinking, where do I set my stuff? I don't ever sit in any of these other seats. So I had to decide. That was a fun time this morning, just interesting. But... Just thinking about those, those songs this morning and just the hardship that some of the families are facing uh, this week. The wonderful cross. I, I think we hear phrases sometimes. We hear phrases, we hear verses, and because we hear them so much, we miss the meaning. It's easy to think, I've heard this verse before. I've read this before. I already know what this says. But depending on when you hear it and what's going through your life, you get something entirely different out of the exact same verse. And so hearing that song, I haven't heard that song in such a long, long time. But hearing that again, just, I, I wish I could sing better. I really do. <laughs> but you don't want to hear me sing. So if, you, if any of you remember that song, um, may it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. That's what I'm really hoping for, is that my singing is a sweet sound to God, not how it actually sounds. So hopefully that's something that he internalizes. But last week we were talking about Ehud and the very, very detailed account of what happened to King Eglon, and it was a very interesting that we have to know so much about how that king died, and not only was it important that he was stabbed, but that he was a very fat man, and that the handle disappeared inside of him. I don't know why we need to know that information. I don't know why God felt that that was necessary to include, and how that helps us in our faith walk, but there it is, and you know, there's a lot of other things that we want to have in our society answered. There are a lot of serious moral, social issues that we want to tackle in our world today. And we wish the Bible just said, point blank, here it is. Here's where God stands. That's not in there. But instead, we get the message of how Eglon died. Interesting how those kinds of things work out that way. But this week, we're after Ehud now. So in Judges chapter 4, there is Deborah, the prophetess, the only female judge in all of Judges. So that's a pretty big deal. And Deborah's story is incredible because it's a story of battle, of great faith, of amazing things happening in Israel. 
And so, if you would please turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 3, verse 31, because we're not going to talk about Deborah today. That's actually going to be a different week. Today, we're actually going to be talking about a judge who was kind of ignored. Now, the interesting thing about Judges chapter 4, it starts out with this phrase, after Ehud, which doesn't really make any sense because Judges chapter 3, verse 31 starts with after Ehud. So who was after who? But we're going to learn today about Shamgar, and his story is actually so short, it's only two sentences long, and I memorized it for you. And it essentially says this, after Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, saved Israel. He killed 600 Philistines with a sharp stick used to guide oxen. Congratulations. You now know the entirety of Shamgar the Brutal's story. We can now close in prayer. Okay, so <laughs> Shamgar doesn't seem like this is much of an impressive story. I mean, partially it is because one, Shamgar took a sharp stick, which if you don't know what that is, if you go to the next slide, this is called a goad. This is a tool used to guide oxen around. I don't know what the hook is for. No idea. I know that sharp part is probably for poking the oxen. I don't really have a lot of experience with oxen. My most experience with oxen was playing the Oregon Trail game in school. So I don't know exactly how to use a goad. All I know, it's a farming tool. This is not a battle weapon. Okay, so if you were to say, what does this say about Shamgar? I would say this probably says that he was not prepared for battle. I mean, he knew what a sword was because we just read the story of Ehud that had a sword. So he knew what that was. It would be the same as if someone was going hunting and they just go into a gun shop and say, I would like a rifle, please. And just no other details, no other idea, no clue, because they don't know what they're talking about. And that's what it kind of seems like. That, to me, is Shamgar is having a bad day. This is Shamgar. Do you, if any of you have ever had siblings, you know those times when they just push your buttons, and they just keep pushing your buttons, and then you just get right to the edge, and then someone comes along, and then they just push you over the edge, and then you're like, that's it? I just... Imagine that possibly that's what happened with Shamgar. He was already having a really bad time, and then these Philistines came along, and he just kind of blinks, and then there's 600 dead Philistines around him. And he's like, okay, <laughs> some anger issues going on here. I just got rid of everybody with, with a farming tool. So that part's impressive. But what's missing from that story is that there's nothing about Shamgar turning Israel back to God. There's no story about Shamgar smashing the idols and telling people, hey, this is the one true God. Stop doing what you're doing. It's just him killing 600 Philistines. That doesn't make any sense. Why is that enough to make him a judge? Clearly, it wasn't enough to make him remembered because Deborah starts with after Ehud. You wonder if who was ever was writing Judges chapter 4 was like, oh, Deborah, she's great. Who, who was before her? Oh, Shamgar. And then the other guy says, who's Shamgar? Oh, you remember that guy that he, uh, he got really angry one day and killed 600 Philistines with a goad? That guy, yeah, it was after him. Well, nobody really remembers him, so let's just say she was after Ehud because everybody knows that guy. He was the left-handed guy. Everybody knows him. So they just kind of skipped over Shamgar. But it's interesting that why is this included? Why are these two verses, or excuse me, these two sentences, this last verse of Judges, if it wasn't even there, would we notice? Would it change anything of what God did for Israel? People back in Judges, there was a lot of death. Far more than just 600 Philistines. Thousands of people. You'd read these, you'd read these biblical accounts, accounts of battles, and thousands of people would die. So for Shamgar, to, for this to be mentioned that he killed 600, doesn't seem like that big of a deal. 
And why is it in here? Why is it there at all? And I think partially, and here's the thing, I'm only 31, so I don't know everything. And I've known since at least 18 that I didn't know everything. And I would tell people that all the time. I don't know everything. Okay, don't ask me for answers. Don't ask me for advice. I will never know everything. It's okay. I don't ever want anyone to assume that. But some of the things that I infer are God sometimes makes a big deal out of small things or insignificant things, seemingly insignificant things. The issue isn't so much with why is Shamgar in there and trying to dissect Shamgar's life. It's more so of our perspective. We tend to have the wrong perspective when we approach things because we approach it from a human standpoint, which is normal and inherent, and that's what we do in everyday life. It's why we dress the way we dress. It's why we drive what we drive because we're trying to impress others. We don't want to look a certain way to certain people. We look through a human mindset, but when we look at God, and the way he is trying to tell the story, he has a whole different viewpoint than what we often see. If you were to have somebody come up to you that was younger than you, so for instance, if I came up to you, and you're older than me, and I said, oh, my back is really sore, what was most likely going to be your response? Probably a combination of, you think your back is sore? Just wait till you get to be my age right? That's usually the wisdom that we pass on is we have like, oh, come on. You know, you hear a teenager say, I'm really stressed out. You're stressed? Are you kidding me? You know, we, we have this like this competition with people when they come to us and our perspective is in the sense of like, oh, you have got to be kidding me. You have no idea what's waiting for you. And I would remember when I was a teen and I would ask people in their twenties, like, oh, I can't wait to be in my twenties. Like, oh, no, you don't. There's going to be bills. There's going to be, you're going to have to work all the time. You're going to have to care for yourself, get your own food, all this stuff. And then I was like, okay, when I was in my 20s, I was like, I can't wait till I'm in my 30s. And then people are like, no, you don't want that either. I was like, why? Like, well, because this thing called metabolism just kind of goes away. And I thought, that's, that's crazy. No, it doesn't. Guess what? <laughs> Guess what is starting to forget? My body is no longer remembering what metabolism is. Some days are better than others, but already at the age of 31, it's starting to be like, it starts with a P. What is that? You know, you have, a, you have a burger and you're like, I shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have had that burger. And that's how it begins, right? And so you ask people in their 40s now. So I ask people in their 40s, okay, am I going to feel better? Like in my 40s, 50s, 60s, is, is, that, is the back pain going to go away? Am I going to feel something? And then they say, you're going to feel, you'll feel something. Yeah, you'll feel something for sure, right? That's the encouragement that you get when you're asking people the next step up, that perspective that you're handed is often one of like, hey, I understand that you're stressed and it's about to get worse. Hey, welcome to the club. <laughs> Congratulations. You're almost there. So if we were to flip that script, change that, someone younger comes to you and they complain about something. I'm just tired all the time. I'm so stressed out. If instead you flip that script and realize that, okay, this person's stress because, let me tell you, the difference between being 31 and being 18, the stress that I felt at 18 would have been a cakewalk compared to how my 20s have gone. My 20s were a disaster for the most part. And going back to 18, I can look at that and say, wow, I could handle that, no problem. But at 18, that's all you know. That is the most stress you've ever felt in your life up to that point. So for someone else to say, that's not that big of a deal, it's very invalidating because it's all you have faced. And so that perspective and knowing that, like, okay, I could handle what they could handle, but they currently are having a hard time handling it. What can I give to them to help them that I would have wanted to hear when I was that age? Yeah, I could probably make a snarky joke. You know, you hear that when a teenager is just about to drive, and you're like, everybody off the streets, 
This guy's about to drive. You know, you have that, like, that reaction. And it's, it's funny, it's cute. To teens, it's not. But to everybody else, everyone thinks it's funny. And then they're just kind of left with this, does anyone actually trust me behind the wheel? Or is this just kind of a general, like, no one's going to trust me ever kind of a thing? But what I would give to myself, going back, if I were to tell that to myself when I was stressed out at 18, I'd say one thing that I love about being 31 is that I know who I am. At 18 and through my 20s, I had no idea, and I felt like I was trying to be everything to everyone. I felt like my true personality was actually just a reflection of everyone's personalities, and I was a different person for every single group because I had to fit in with every single group. And it was like having to constantly shift this puzzle piece of myself to fit wherever I was. Now at 31, I realized, hey, look, I'm a goofball. That's not going to go away. This is who I am. These are the things I like. If that's not going to work for you, we don't have to argue. We don't have to get into a whole thing. We can just kind of be acquaintances, and that's as far as this has to go. And that's all that's going to happen. I can just smile and walk away with that. I don't have to try and force myself to get along with absolutely everybody because it's exhausting, and I have already done tried that. And that's something that I could pass on to my younger self, and that's something I could pass on to anyone else feeling that way, just as I could be just as receptive to somebody else older than me. Because if I were to ask each and every one of you, if I were to take you out to lunch and ask you about your life, and maybe there's some things you'd probably change, maybe there's some people you probably would wish were still around that aren't, but generally, if I were to ask you, do you enjoy who you are right now, you'd probably say yes. There's probably things about your life you enjoy regardless of whatever decade you're in you would probably find that enjoyable and be able to say that. So instead of passing on this like, oh, get ready, you know, it's only going to get worse from here, you could say, yeah, it's, I do have a lot more back pain than you, so uh, there is that in, in the works, but hey, here's something that you can look forward to. Here's something that I do love about being in my 50s, my 60s, my 80s, whatever it is, whatever decade you're in, you can find that. You can find that sincerity, that serenity in that age. And that's, that's just a shift in that perspective. And so when we look at this, God takes unsuspecting stories all the time. Shamgar is just one example. A much more famous example would be the last judge of Israel, Samuel. We're in Samuel chapter 1, or yeah, 1 Samuel, excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we have Samuel going to the home of Jesse. And when Samuel is there, this is something that I had even forgotten until I read, reread this passage this week. But Samuel and he says, I want to see your sons. God has chosen one of them. You know, bring your sons out. And the first son that comes out is, does anybody know his name? No, because why would we? He's not important, right? He's not the main character. He's not who we follow. But that's the whole idea of this. And you're going to see that in a second. So Eliab is his name. Eliab comes out. And this isn't something where the, the third person narrator of First Samuel says Eliab was impressive. It actually explicitly says Samuel was impressed by Eliab. So Samuel was standing there, and Eliab comes before him and goes, wow, now that is a specimen. That is quite the human. All right, this, is, this has got to be the guy that God chose. I am impressed. And as Eliab's coming closer, God actually tells Samuel, don't. Don't look at him. I have not chosen him. And in this, he gives us the secret formula. He says, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And Samuel stops, goes, okay. So Eliab stands off to the side and said, that's not the one. And then it just proceeds. Now Samuel's no longer making these judgment calls based on appearance. Jesse's sons are coming up and Samuel's saying, it's not him. Nope, it's not him. 
Nope. And he's passing through seven sons. And Jesse's confused, and they're all probably confused, like, well, what's wrong with me? I, I'm strong. I'm capable. I don't get it. And then that's when we hear, like, do you have any more children? I don't see any more sons. And Jesse says, well, yes, there's a small boy out in the field tending to the sheep, so he smells of sheep. Do you really want me to go fetch him? And yes, fetch him. And so then little David comes, little unsuspecting David. And that's when God says, him. That's the one. Why David? Why not Eliab, the guy who was clearly impressive? Why choose the scrawny kid? We would not know David had Samuel gotten his way and chosen Eliab. You wouldn't remember it, just as we don't remember Eliab's name. It doesn't matter. The story doesn't follow him. The story follows David. God chose David, who not only was he the runt of the family, not only was he out with the sheep while all his other brothers had passed on all their chores onto him, you know, as older brothers do, they pass on all their stuff to you as the younger brother, but even more so, David himself was part Moabite. Because if we go back to his great-grandmother, Ruth was also somebody who was unsuspecting. You remember that part in when, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees are talking to Jesus and they say, what good could come from Nazareth? What good could come from Moab? Moab was one of Israel's enemies, evil, and yet Ruth came from there. In fact, if Ruth had listened to Naomi when Naomi said, your sisters have gone back to their families and their gods, you do the same. If Ruth had listened, David would never have existed. That's how crazy God's plans are, that they're so interconnected, both in the good and the, and the bad. There's consequences in the little things we don't think matter. Going further back in 1 Samuel, we have this, this time where Saul was told, you'd have to go and eliminate the Amalekites. And he says, okay, I'll do that. But of course, we know he didn't. He saved some of the oxen. He saved some of the goats. And he thought, sacrifice is good. God loves sacrifice. So I'm going to save the best of these animals. And then he saved the king. And the reason why this guy's name is important is because <clears throat> King Agag survived. We see in Esther, all the way down in exile, there was a man who wanted to kill her uncle Mordecai. That man's name was Haman. Haman was an Agagite. Saul's treachery affected generations later in God's plans. Our decisions matter. Our choices have consequences. And who God chooses has consequences. Now, we know David to be one of the greatest kings of Israel. Right? We know Ruth was amazing simply because of her incredible love for Naomi, to never depart from her. And we, we cherish these people. And that's sometimes the hard part about going through Judges because we know who the A-team of Judges is. Right? Deborah is in there, and Samson, the strongest man. And then, of course, everyone's favorite, Gideon. And it's hard because we look at these Judges and we think, how am I ever going to measure up to that? The difference, the only difference, between those people then and us now is that they were born then and we were born now. Aside from that, they were humans just like us. They went through everyday life just like us. They had their own temptations, their own struggles. They're human. The only difference is they let God use them and not count themselves out. Perspective changes everything. God uses your story 
how you choose him to use your story. We can decide, no matter how small you think, because let me tell you, if you, wanna, if you were to ask about how impressive my life has been, if you were to make a biography about my life because you were bored and had nothing else to do, not only would you be even more bored by the time you were done, but somebody would probably have to make a biography about your life because you would have died of boredom. Because my life has not been anything impressive in terms of human history. I have not done anything that somebody would read about and be like, wow, that was crazy. It's just been a kind of a run-of-the-mill kind of a thing. In fact, if you were to look at my entire family, the Twyford family, we don't do drama. We just don't. In fact, it was actually so interesting because Josh would talk to, about my dad like after the, each Sunday that he would preach because my dad always had something hilarious to say, and it was great because he just, he just has this whole different way of seeing life. Drama in my family, I'll give you an example. Drama in my family would be my uncle calling my dad saying, hey, gas prices just went up 30 cents. What are we going to do? Like, that's about it. That's about as much drama as exists in my family. So when I, I meet other people and they're screaming and shouting and there's all this backfighting between cousins, I'm like, huh. <laughs> it's just curious because I don't have that. So my life, by extension, is not anything impressive. Probably the most interesting thing about me is that I'm three quarters black. That's about it. <laughs> there's not a whole lot to me. But at the same time, out of all of history, out of all of time, however long you want it to last, however long we can debate this theologically, whether it was a literal six days of creation or whether the earth has been around for four and a half billion years and the universe 13.8 billion years, whatever it is you want to believe, out of all of that time, God still cares for me. That's the biggest difference, is that it doesn't matter what you think your story is or if you think God can't use you. And he might not use you to become, you know, king of Israel. You might not become the biggest speaker for Christianity in the nation, whoever it is you can think of, your favorite Christian author. You might not be called to that, and that's okay. Because everyone has a part in God's novel. Everyone has a place. Every little character, if you think about that, every letter of every word, of every sentence... Otherwise, it all falls apart. Because if you take out one letter of a word, that word no longer makes sense. And if that word no longer makes sense, the sentence no longer makes sense. And then the paragraph, and then the page, it falls apart because we were all placed exactly where we were placed so that he could use us. That is the whole point of it. That's been the whole point of this, of the Bible, which is God's love letter to humanity of saying, do you get it now? Do you get how much I care about you? Why do you think that heaven rejoices over one person rescued over the 99 who remain? Does he still celebrate the 99 who remain? Absolutely. But the amount of rejoicing over the one is so much greater because regardless of how little he's, that one seemed in our eyes, it's back to God. I found you. You're mine. And you get to be with me forever. That's God's excitement because the other 99, they're already safe. They're already okay. They're already with the shepherd. It's the one that needs to be found. It's the one that needs to be brought back. And then God is so excited because he found the one. I got him. That is what is so great about Shamgar is he got two sentences out of the Bible, which is more than any of us will ever get. So that's already impressive right there. He at least got mentioned, right? That's already pretty great. But what did he do for Israel? He saved them from the Philistines. That was enough. That's what God needed him for. God needed him to take a farming tool, 
kill 600 Philistines, and then disappear. And he did. Just as many other stories throughout the Bible might seem like, I don't know why this is there. I don't know why we need to know these details. They're there because it matters to God. The little details matter to God. As we change our perspective, as we tell our stories, which, by the way, we're all still here, which means we all still have a story to tell. And if I were to split life, I would split it into three different stages. I would say the first stage is the nine months that we are getting ready for the world here. And if you think about it, those nine months, it's strange. Why are we growing ears and forming eyes if there's nothing to see and there's nothing to hear in the womb? There's no reason to have a nose. There's no reason to have lungs. We're not breathing. It's because that first stage of life is preparing us for this one. So now we enter this world, we're ready to go. This stage is preparing us for the third. Ultimately, however, when you're being prepared for this world, it's automatic. There's nothing you have to do. That happens by itself. This is the one where we get to choose. You can write your story apart from God, or you can write it with him as the main character. But that's your choice. And then the third stage. And that's the most exciting one of all. God wants us to be excited and to value ourselves just as much as he values us. Perspective is often the problem. And it is something that has blessed me this week because I have had a doozy of the last few years. And if you want to hear my personal story, I'd love to tell you sometime. But it's been, it has been a doozy. And there have been people close to me that have helped me through it and helped me get through it all. And now at this side of it, because, you know, in the thick of it, if any of you have ever been through those hard times, in the thick of it, you wonder, is this ever going to end? Is this ever going to get to a resolution? And you don't see how. And your faith is challenged. And everything about your life is challenged. But then you get to the other side of it, and you look back, and you go, I am so incredibly thankful for not only God sticking it out and fighting for me, because that's the biggest thing, that even if you don't realize that he is fighting for you, God is in the midst of all your struggles, even when you don't see him, fighting for you because he thinks you're worth that much. You don't often see that you're worth that much, especially in those moments you think God's forgotten you. And it's those moments when he's remembering you the most. If you don't think that God cries just as much as you and feels the same pain as you, when we're going through things, remember the cross, the wonderful cross. He felt pain too. He created emotions in the first place. If we feel sadness, imagine how he feels when he's sad. Imagine how much that must hurt him when he sees us hurting. God is in the midst of everything in our lives, whether we see it or not. And then at the other side of it, we come out of it and I realize there he was. I didn't see it, but there he was. And now here I am. And I get to be 31 and I get to have my whole life ahead of me and get to decide what I want to do. And I don't have to be held down by the horribleness that I was going through. But I also get to choose and realize that I get to choose where I'm going next. Is my story going to be where God is the center? And I love this analogy that someone told me once. It was about Joseph. And Joseph, at the end of the story, when he is made second command of all Egypt, they said, imagine yourself, you are Pharaoh. God is the Joseph in your life. Ultimately, it's up to you. Ultimately, you get to decide where your life goes. 
but you can always side with God. You can always choose to listen to him because you know he knows what he's talking about. So you can give him that authority to control your life or you can take it from him. My recommendation would be that you don't, but that's up to you. I, I can't even begin to express just what this means to me, understanding where God is in our time now. Many generations have said that this is it. You know, this is the end. This is, it can't get any worse than this. And then the next generation, next generation realizes it's gotten worse. And we wonder how much bad, how much worse can it get? And the thing of it all is with God that this mindset of seeing the negativity around us. I mean, we can all agree across from whatever political background you come from that negativity has gotten out of hand. And we don't need to keep spreading it. Somebody younger than you comes to you and says that they're stressed out, empathize with them. Care for them. Somebody who is a resource for, I wish I had been told this. We don't have to continue this cycle of negativity. It's very easy to, and it's very easy. And I'll probably slip up myself because I'm also not perfect. But as we continue fighting for what God is trying to get us to understand, people see that in us. People see that in our church, and they see that in who we are as a people of God, that we are a people of God that stand for seeing things his way, accomplishing his mission in this city at this time. With the amount of churches that are in the city, it's incredible that there aren't more people committed to God. It's incredible because there's so many churches here, and just Nazarene churches. When I first started, I was like, okay, I, need, I want to make sure I have as many churches contacts as I have because being media director, I want to tell your stories, and I want to tell the story of this church because that's my favorite thing is telling stories. Ever since I was a kid, I used to read all the time. I love to tell the stories of people and especially of the church and of faith and what God is doing. And so I wanted to be able to contact other churches so we can partner together because we're all Nazarene. We don't need to compete. We're all on the same team. We all know what we all believe. And there are so many Nazarene churches in this area. I didn't know that. It's ridiculous how many Nazarene churches there are in this area. Why do we not see such a greater impact in this community? Why are there still so many people that say they don't care for religion? They have this misconception of who God is. Is it because we ourselves are not living out that same perception? Is it because we are not doing the work in our own lives because revival doesn't start by having a big tent meeting and having people come. It starts within you. People see the light of God within you and then it spreads. You can't expect everyone else to fix themselves and then you're okay. It starts with us. It starts within your own circle of yourself. And as you work on yourself, as you become alive, that is infectious to those around you. They see that and they want that. Even if they don't know what it is, what is it that gives you hope? When we read the fruit of the Spirit, it is so much so above and beyond what you can produce humanly. If God, the Holy Spirit, is going to give you peace, then it should be more peace than a Buddhist could ever achieve. Whatever group you want to associate with the most peaceful group possible, God should be able to provide you more peace than that because this is a supernatural peace. He should be able to provide more joy, more kindness, more self-control, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more love than anything else than anybody else can manufacture because it's to a supernatural degree. As yet another preacher once said, it is as if we are all gloves, but they are, gloves are empowered when the hand goes into the glove. Now that glove has purpose and it has capability, but by itself, it's just a glove. 
And we as vessels, the Holy Spirit is waiting to fill us, to invite us into that. Again, it starts with, do we believe him? Do we believe him when the Holy Spirit says that he wants to empower us and change us? And do we let him? Because only then do we get to experience those moments of faith, those moments where he takes our life into a stage that we didn't see coming. That is the greatest treat of all. And if there's anything that I could say to you this morning that I would that I'd want to say out of all the millions of thoughts, and trust me, there are so many avenues I want to go down that I'm going to try and restrict myself. But of all the things that I'd want to say, it is that life is unexpected, and so is God. And the more that you allow yourself to expect to embrace where God is taking you, the more that 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 unexpected moment, those unexpected encounters, they change. You might still experience horrible, I won't say horrible, you might still experience heavy moments. You might still experience moments of frustration and anger and loneliness, but you're also going to experience the other side of them and you're also going to see them differently because God will lead you to see them differently, his way. The heroes that we have been learning about in Judges, it's easy for us to see how some of them were faithful. We see how Gideon turns from this cowardly man into this great leader. It's easy to see that transformation, but we don't always see the transformation in these stories. We don't always see why God picked a certain person, but we still know that he did. God picks each and every one of us, and we can be used for that. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your heart. You chose David after your own heart, a boy of no significance. You chose us here and today because we exist because of you. If, if you could know the plans that you have for Jeremiah before he was even in the womb you could say the same of us. You know who we are. You know we were coming. You know who we are today, where we are struggling and where we are celebrating. We are so incredibly excited to get to join you on this journey. But sometimes we need a little reminder that you're there. I ask that for those of us this morning that if we aren't seeing you, if we're missing you, Show us, remind us of where you are so that we can remember our first love, which is you. That in this world, we can have a life that is inspired and empowered and impacted by you. You are the greatest thing that has ever happened to us. The greatest thing that has ever happened to this church. And as we go through our lives together, I pray that you inspire us to reach out to those who have not yet been rescued to help find the one to bring back to the 99. Amen.